0: Uh, My name is Quiva, and I'm involved in Dublin Book Festival and in History Ireland, so on behalf of both, you're very welcome. Um, Big thank you to Dublin Port for hosting us today. Um, I hope you all found it okay. And uh, just a quick note of housekeeping, if there's an unlikely fire, you go back out the way you came and just gather at the flagpoles up to the right. Um, so without further ado, I'll pass over to Tommy and he'll introduce your speakers. And I encourage you to have a look at the programme. There's more on this afternoon and tomorrow in Smock Alley. So pick up a programme or check out DublinBookFestival.com. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Kiva. Uh, good afternoon, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School, part of the Dublin Festival of Books. I'm delighted to, to be here. Uh, so I'm your head Schoolmaster, master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland uh, magazine, and I'll assume you're all subscribers and so lots of uh, familiar uh, faces here. Of course, just because you're familiar faces doesn't mean you're, you're a subscriber. But, uh, you know, I'll let that rest with your conscience. Uh, anyway, today we're going to look at the, uh, the Great Hunger uh, and uh, the popularity of um, the, the travelling exhibition. It's Cunec? That university with the funny name, right? <laughs> uh, the Coming Home Exhibition, which uh, will be opening up in, in the Gasworks uh, uh, in Derry in January. So the, the popularity of that and the release of the film Black 47. How many people have seen the film Black 47? Okay, so we, we, we may have a chat about that. And many people have seen the exhibition, by the way, the, the Coming Home. So most people have seen it, yeah, myself included. Okay, so... Um, Now, for a reassessment of Europe's greatest demographic crisis of the 19th century, we have gathered here a stellar panel. John Gibney, uh, who's the editor of The Great Irish Famine. Uh, This is a a collaboration between Pen & Sword and History Ireland Magazine. Uh, John will explain what that's all about shortly. Uh, On the far right, left here, we have uh, Patricia Byrne, uh, author of The Preacher and the Prelate, The Mission Colony and the Battle for Souls in Famine, Ireland. Uh, that's published by Irish Academic Press, and then finally here on my left, uh, we have uh, Peter Gray. Uh, now Peter has a chapter, the Great the Great Irish Famine, 1845 to 1850 in uh, jimmy kelly's uh, volume three of the cambridge history of ireland now I have all the books here except that one because it's so big such a huge heavy tome. we could not actually uh, lift it here in front of you uh, but it, it is being currently reviewed uh, in history ireland so we have we've, we've done two of the volumes and we'll be doing the, the other two in the next uh, couple of issues um, maybe peter gray if i could i could start with you what is here's a simple question for you what are you telling us in this chapter about the famine? I mean, maybe this might be an opportunity just to, to give us a, a brief recap on the basic mm. uh, the facts and figures about the, the potato famine, which can sometimes get lost in other arguments.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's a great privilege to be asked to, to write the chapter on the famine in the Cambridge history of Ireland, which is kind of landmark publication. It's kind of pulling together, or attempting to pull together a kind of generation's worth of, of uh, research on, on Irish history. So, um, but then there's a, the huge challenges involved as well because you've got eight or 9,000 words to pull together a narrative and also your interpretation and understanding of a very complex and very problematic episode in, in Irish history. So what I tried to do in that chapter is to give a, a kind of a, a narrative essentially setting out what happened, um, you know, the, the disease in the potato crop, the reason why that had such a huge impact on Irish society, uh, the failure of the state... Uh, to respond adequately, Uh, the landlord behaviour, the meeting to the mass clearances, uh, the role of public charity or or, uh, a public charity and why why that was inadequate as a a response. Uh, And then the kind of, you know, the demographic um, consequences of all of this with uh, about a million deaths uh, due to uh, starvation and famine-related diseases, and a million uh, forced into emigration in the period between 1845 and 1851. So, I mean, the, the chapter really is to have to kind of pull all this together, and then to give kind of my interpretation, which I've kind of been working on as I've been kind of researching the Great Famine for about 25 years now, which is my argument essentially is that uh, is that the state has a high degree of responsibility for what happens, even within all the constraints uh, uh, and limitations, uh, which limit what the state can do. It nevertheless still has a high degree of responsibility for the scale of mortality. Um, and um, and the reasons for that lie in the field of ideolo- ideology and the kind of ideological construction of what's happening during the Great Famine uh, as well.
1: And how, Peter, how... How has the thinking on the famine developed then? I mean, how would you sum it up? Like, I mean, I, I know there's different aspects to it, but in ter- like, what's different with what's been written now to, to what might have been written 30 or 40 years ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, if, if you go back to, uh, to the earlier mid-1980s, there's, there's remarkably little historical writing about the Great Famine. We've kind of Cecil Woodham Smith's Great Book of 1962. We've got the Edwards, Edwards and Williams collection from 1956, then older nationalist and Catholic histories. But really, you know, very little academic writing about the famine. And then we have, really from the mid-'80s, a kind of transformation of that space, right. as you've got serious economic histories of the famine by people like Joel McKeer and, and Cormac O'Groda. And then in the 90s, uh, you've got kind of interpretations and, and research into, uh, into how the state responds by people by like, like Christine Keneally, uh and myself, um, I, you've got uh, studies of how the, the churches respond uh, um, uh, by, by Donald Kerr and other people looking at the role of. So there's whole explosion of. So, the of no church, of so, so we know we now have a kind of, we're now kind of significantly further on, and a lot of this is pulled together. And I can't praise this book highly enough. In just in recent years, the atlas that was published in in 2012, uh, edited by by Willie Smith and his team down in Cork, has done, I think, a huge amount to pull together the the recent scholarship on the...
3: Can I just throw on
1: something before I forget it? Mm
4: -hmm.
1: Was the 150th anniversary of the the, the Great Hunger, was that significant in this whole development of scholarship?
2: Um, I think a lot of the scholarship was beginning beginning before that. Certainly I I myself was starting to to work on this subject really at the end of the 1980s, well before the sesquicentenary in in the mid-90s, but it certainly raised the the public interest and the public profile of the Great Famine. The, the opening of the Famine Museum uh, at Strokestown, I think, was a major step forward. The high profile that Mary Robinson, as president, gave to famine history in, in her kind of uh, pu- public uh, presentations, I think, was yeah, but it seems to me this, well. this,
1: there was quite a positive interaction between the Academy yep. and the, 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 the wider sphere of, yep. of public history. Yep. Okay. Um, John Gibney, can I go on to you now? Because... Uh, if I might say so modestly, you know, History Ireland was part of this explosion of scholarship uh, because uh, there was no shortage of copy uh, on famine-related matters in the 1990s when when History Ireland started. And, of course, Peter, you, you were involved on the editorial board at that stage. So, John, can you just give us an idea? What's this what's this pen and sword <coughs> collaboration with History Ireland? What's this book all about?
5: I suppose it's basically about getting your back cut out, Tommy, and selling it to the Brits. Um, <laughs> in a glib Just way. Serving it back them. Yes. In, no, it's, I like I mean, it. The, I mean, History 20. Ireland has been going for about for about twenty five years, and a lot of twenty seven actually. Twenty <laughs> Twenty. It's gone for 26. a while anyway. But um, you know, there's a qu- obviously that, that leads to an extensive back catalogue, and the back catalogue would contain articles by um, well, a lot of leading scholars. You know, on on the various fields which have written. I mean, Peter has a couple of articles in the anthology that, um, that were, that's under discussion here. And the idea was that, um, I suppose as you go further back in time, these things get a little bit more buried. And Pen and Sword, who would be a UK publisher, um, with a focus on history and military history in particular, um, basically History Ireland and Pen and Sword entered into, into a collaboration. And the idea was, why not come up with a series of volumes that can utilise the articles in the back catalogue. And the History Ireland article is short-ish, you know, um, but... There's enough of the, there will be enough of them on certain subjects to form coherent overviews of those subjects. And the famine is the first. The second one is about, going to be about the 1798 year rebellion and, and issues around that. So, um, I mean, Tommy, you didn't have the time. So uh, as someone who'd worked for History Ireland more intensively in the past than necessarily I do now, I got roped in to kind of um, use my fam- familiarity with the back catalogue to try and pull them together. So the idea is to use that material. And it's not every article that was ever published in the magazine. I mean, because you, you want to create a coherent book at the end of the day rather than, say, just a rag-bag collection. Hopefully we've done that. Um, there will be articles on, say, like, broad stroke overviews of the context of the famine, um, an examination of the lump of potato by Cormac O'Grady one of the leading experts on the famine. And you can't really have a discussion of potato famine without a discussion of the potato that was so afflicted uh, during the 1840s. Articles on various aspects of, say, the ideology relating to the famine, um, institutions, political institutions, the police... Disease, a sequence of articles on um, relief efforts, you know, both public and private, and that, in, in, you know, given that Patricia's here, worth noting, one of them is uh, about Quaker relief efforts in the west of Ireland, which has an obvious resonance to to your own book, and concluding with pieces on, say, the long-term social and demographic impact of the famine and the way in which historians have looked at the famine over time. So it's meant to um, a lot of this would have been generated in and around the uh, the 150th anniversary and. You know, as we inquired of authors, if they wished to update their pieces. Some did, some felt they still, they, they still got the job done and stood the test of time. But the idea is to kind of, I suppose, take a lot of that work that was published in the, the 1990s and the early 90s, um, and, I suppose, turn it into a coherent volume and a short overview um, of The Famine, and one that, in particular, you'd hope that would be of interest to um, audiences overseas who would know something about The Famine but would know a great deal about it, but one that we would hope is of interest to an Irish audience as well.
1: Yeah, but yeah I, one of the articles, for example, is uh, Rob, Rob Goodbody's on, on the Quakers. Now, the Quakers get get a normally uh, get a positive. Uh, uh, there's a positive view of them because their 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 assistance was had no strings attached. Now, Patricia, that, that's that's. Put it mildly. That's that's in contrast to the to the approach taken by, by the subject of your book, yeah, which absolutely. is a bit broader. And I want to give you an opportunity because you, you're, yeah. uh, I mean, you got roped into this discussion because famine is in your title. Uh, <laughs> but, no, tell us a little bit about. <laughs> famine the, is the, in the, my bones as is, well. Yeah, yeah. No, tell us a about, No, no, it does bear yes. on the famine. But just t- talk to us a little bit about the actual mission. Well, my
6: story. It's a narrative non-history of the actual mission colony. And it's, I suppose, differs from the others in that it's very much a zoomed-in, close-up, microscopic look at one particular area, Ackle Island, one particular larger-than-life individual, Edward Angle, and one enterprise, the Ackle Colony. And it's framed, if any of you have read my book, you see it's framed in the context of a kind of personal journey for me, realising that the trauma of what happened is very much still alive in Ackle, and me working through that, and walking through the island, and listening to the folklore. It's, it, what, what I'm really interested in is the story is in three phases. And uh, the phases, I think, take in really the big themes of the famine. Because Edward Nangle came to Ackle having gotten... He was an extreme ev- evangelical um, um, a Protestant. He was very much imbued by what was going on in the Second Reformation in Cavan and around Lord Farnham's where estate. From, where is he from, Patricia, fr- He was originally from uh, County Meath, but ended up as a curate in, in Arva in County Cavan. And all of the Second Reformation stuff of the 1920s really imbued him with this ideo- the ideology that really came to fruition. What denomination was he uh, Sorry, what denomination? Uh, was Protestant, it? evangelical, yeah. Protestant. Or well, was he
1: Church of Ireland, or? or uh,
6: well, Protestantism. Uh, yeah, he was Church of Ireland, but there were various. Right, yeah, uh, but he was at uh, the, various, e- the evangelical. And he wing. was at the yeah. evangelical. So he was imbued with this, particularly on Lord Farnham's estate, where Lord Farnham was using uh, conversions and so on to make better tenants. He came to Ackle. He decided to set up a, a colony in Ackle. Which would have a mix of temporal stuff, um, like farm reclamation, land reclamation, orphanages, hospital, and so on. And at the heart of it was scriptural schools. So, in that first phase, and obviously he locked horns with Mikhail, um, John Mikhail, but in that first phase, which, I mean, he was actually an ACL for a decade before the famine broke out, superism. Uh, in the sense of people changing faith in returns for material benefit, was happening in the decade leading up to the famine. And it was actually interesting that before the famine happened, people were doing formal uh, public uh, changes of faith in Ackles, which stopped at the beginning of the famine. So that whole groundwork, if you like, of people converting and coming from all over Mayo and all over Ireland to take up residence at the colony and to convert for, for what they were getting, The famine came then, and of course what happened in Ackle in the famine is that uh, Edward Nangle and the Ackle Mission started to feed the children in the famine schools. Um, One would say almost a very natural thing to do, um, he was protecting his schools against um, uh, John McHale's schools, there was a fierce battle going over on the schools, except, and I don't think Edward Nangle would have realised the famine would have gone on, except He actually saw it then as an instrument almost of God by feeding the children in the schools. It obviously accelerated greatly uh, the attraction of children going to the schools. It's
1: to never let a a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, but just one
6: final point. What really interests me, Edward Nangle and the Acclamation Connolly then purchased the estate from the encumbered estates, so you had the whole progression from the scriptural schools through the famine and superism to then the Ackle mission becoming the landlord. And what I found, it, uh, what I found in Ackle is almost the land became almost a more sore point, but it was actually all of them together, I think, which created that um, sort of trauma. So it was a, a hugely uh, dramatic um, enterprise right through the 19th century in, in Ackle.
1: Okay, I tell you what. Can you just come back to the question of historiography, and maybe Peter and John in this one, because John, one of the articles that the, the last article in the collection is um, Jim Donnelly's one, the Great Feminist Interpreters, Old and New. Now, this was this was this would be published in the early nineties, right? Mm. Um, I remember I was quite excited about publishing that at the time. I have to say because he took he he took a right go at uh, the previous generation of, of historians, in particular. Uh, that, that collection that was published in, in the 1950s. Mm. Maybe P- Peter, if you want to just talk about that, maybe you explain what the, what that collection in the 50s was, first of all.
2: Yeah, uh, okay, so um, this was published in 1956 as The Great Famine Studies in Irish History, edited by Dudley Edwards and... Um T.D. Williams. Um, it was. It was actually funded bizarrely by De Valera. But it was meant to come out in nineteen forty-five. I think the money came in nineteen forty-five or nineteen forty-six. Allegedly paid for those ten days. years to actually produce it. And of course, when it fi- finally came out, it was not what De Valera, in a sense, had paid for. It was, you know, the classic what is now described as revisionist history of the Great Famine. Uh, the introduction, which is actually written by Kevin Nolan, who's not credited with it, but it was written by Kevin Nolan from UCD tends to downplay the traditional nationalist interpretation to play up a kind of an understanding we should have of the problems that faced British governors and administrators in the time. It it suggested that no other government would have acted in in any different way. You know, in some ways it kind of makes excuses. It's kind of an apologia for government during the great famine and that's what i think attracted then the critique of the next generation of historians jim donnelly in that article comical mm. Grodda, an article he, uh, he wrote as well and he wrote a whole article about how that book was put together which is very critical of its content and you know that had an impact on on, on me starting off my research at that time right as right. well and thinking you know what are the arguments here what are the issues
1: do you want to say any more about that, that the, the donnelly piece well John?
5: The, the, i suppose the two things about it on the, on the one hand um we do hear the term, the term revisionism is one of these terms banded around in Irish historical writing a lot. Maybe more in a way that's more relevant to the 1980s and 1990s than, than today. But And I should say, Jim Donnelly is an American historian, you know, which is based in the University of Wisconsin. And what he wrote was, I mean, one one criticism of, you know, to use that term revisionism loosely, one criticism of what revisionist histori- historical writing from within the academy was sometimes that it was throwing the baby out of the bathwater. water. That in trying to explore Irish history in a more complex manner, at a times it could be replacing one orthodoxy with another and could become misleading in its own right. Um, if, for example, you, you know, the famine was just a result of, kind of structural problems or issues in Irish society, then you might reach a point at which, well, it just happened without any agency. And this is something Donnelly was quite critical of, and he was trying to, kind of, I suppose, uh, counterbalance it. Now, he did reference the book that Peter has mentioned, you know, which Lady Presbury re- published a few years ago. Um, but Donnelly, when he, Donnelly took particular interest in, um, I suppose, one of the most w- well-known writers of the famine, about the famine, who was the 19th century polemicist John Mitchell, who formulated that famous line about, you know, on a paraphrase in but God created the blight, but the English created the famine. And Donnelly, I don't think any professional historian would fully ex- would accept that thesis today, but Donnelly was making the point, look, there's a reason why John Mitchell was saying these things. Even if you factor in the fact that, right, he was writing a propagandist tract at the time, there's a reason why he, he did touch upon some things that have a substantial grain of truth in them. Like one point he makes in the article is that, uh, you know, John Mitchell's critique of Charles Trevelyan. He basically says, well, a lot of modern academics would probably say the similar things about Trevelyan. They just mightn't use, they mightn't use the same language. And the point he was making was that you kind of do have to go back to the perspective of how things looked at the time and why did someone like that write that in the context of the 19th century rather than just dismiss it as a polemic, because it is a polemic. But Donnelly did make the point, there's a few things in here that, you know, there's a lot that this, that Mitchell got wrong, but there's a few things that he got right. And that, to a certain extent, perhaps the lesson you might take from that is that it's better. perhaps you're better off engaging with the reality of how people lived and existed at the time, and you're not going to get all of that. Because in one article that... Uh, I would love to include, include it in the uh, in the anthology, except for the fact that it doesn't exist. Is an article reflecting the voices of those who experienced and suffered within the famine themselves. Now, other historians have written on that. You know, Cormac O'Grada has written on it. Um, Neil O'Kassan has written on it, often using folkloric material. But these are you don't necessarily get the voices of famine victims, or you don't always get the voice of those who experienced it. And the point that Donnelly was making, that was perhaps look away from the debates amongst historians, important as they are, and just bear in mind that people writing in the 19th century did so for a reason. And while some of those reasons can be critiqued and left to one side, sometimes they're coming from somewhere and that perspective shouldn't be entirely invalidated. And he was saying that as someone who did dismiss a lot of what Mitchell was saying, but did also point out, this guy is pointing out a few things in which there are a few grains of truth.
1: Okay, well, alongside the, 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 that revisionist trend, uh, was the, the the sort of conspiracy theory that the famine was genocide and that academic historians were not recognising that fact. Now, it seems to me that, judging by what I see on the net, right, that that uh, discussion continues to rage. So, Peter, how, is there any chance of a reconciliation or coming together on this? Right? Or are these people... I mean, the problem with, with people who have conspiracy theories is it's, it's a closed... <coughs> sealed argument right is there any point in engaging with this uh, this whole thing
2: well i think you have to acknowledge that there's a huge emotional power in the arguments uh, for genocide which goes back to to john mitchell it also goes back to the experience of many of those who survived and and to whom mitchell's words appeal in the early night in the mid 19th century late 19th century as ways of interpreting what they'd been through and how to rebuild their lives afterwards and how to give meaning to that um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think there are problems with it. There has been a recent attempt to restate the Mitchellite position to Pat Coogan's book, The, the Famine Plot, uh, in 2013. Uh, attempts, I think, unsuccessfully and not particularly uh, uh, powerfully to restate the, the, the Mitchellite position. Um, t- to me... It, 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 to me, I mean, if you go back, to, okay. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. If you go back to the, what genocide is, genocide is defined by the uh, well, United I, Nations I, 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 in 1948. If you want to re- read out the definition, well, first,
1: first yeah. of all, the thing about genocide is it's the the ter- the, the, the term isn't coined until 1945. Yeah. That's problematic straight away. Yeah. But let's 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 leave that to one side. I mean, that raises a philosophical question, just because mm-hmm. a term. Hasn't been applied. Mm -hmm. Has the phenomenon existed anyway? Let's park that for the moment. Mitchell
2: uses the term extermination. Okay, okay, so it's it's pretty close.
1: So it it was it was drawn up in nineteen forty eight, and it says any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic,al racial or religious group as such, a killing members of the group, b causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, does this fall within that category? rich what, what, mean, yeah, what do you think?
6: I'm, I'm sort of interested the way this becomes. Is it genocide or is it not? A you know, really binary yeah, kind of yeah. thing. What I found in the course of my research on the whole evangelical Protestant thing, which developed in the 1820s, it was a force for good in Lawn Farnham's estate. Take these um, popish peasants, convert them, make them more temperate, give them civilized living. So it was it was a force of good. Edward Nangle took that and he uh, tried to bring it, bring it uh, to Ackle. It, it also led in to a certain type of political uh, philosophy. In fact, sometimes I think of the economic collapse a few years ago, and who was to blame for that? It, it, it was a political uh, philosophy that inculcated everybody, including Edward Nangle in, in, um, in Ackle. And I suppose we try, a bit like in Black 47, we tried to say, was it genocide, was it not genocide? And I think the way Peter describes it in the book, uh, it's difficult to say it was very definitely, and certainly there were some people who felt we need to get rid of people, the population is too large, we need to bring the farms down and so on. But it certainly infiltrated uh, the whole system, including, I was quite uh, taken aback by the way it, it infiltrated the whole acklemission colony right through to the period when Edward Nangle and the acklemission became a landlord and which it, it continued through that. But to actually say in a very definite way it's, it was deliberate genocide, it's, a big, it's quite a big jump.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
2: it seems to me. I mean, the the, the crucial word in the in the 1948 right. definition is intent. Yeah. Mm. So to to be to use that definition effectively, you need to demonstrate mm. there's intent on the part of the state to destroy. The Irish people, or the Irish Catholic people, or a portion of it, and then you've got to essentially find a, a, a kind of motivation for that. And I've been working on this, as I say, for about twenty-five years, working through the private papers of government ministers and administrators. No, it's and I can't. Gone. I can't find that. In te- what I can find is, is, I mean, what fits much more easily with, with what we now described as a neoliberal ideological preoccupation mm, mm. with forcing people to help themselves, mm, mm. with making them, you know, making them work, you know, self-sufficiency. Mm, mm. These are familiar
1: uh, uh, notions of social welfare. Yeah. I um,
2: mean, but I mean, th- I mean, this the, this is the ideology that motivates people like Charles Trevelyan. I mean, classical liberalism and, the, and uh, what I describe as moralism, force, essentially saying the problem in Ireland is a moral problem. It affects both landlords and peasants. They need to be forced to help themselves. Mm. And if the state gives too much, they're never going mm. to do that. Mm. And fun- to me, fundamentally, that is the reason why the state doesn't mobilise all the resources Potentially, it could have, and which it demonstrated had the capacity to do it. in one moment in the summer of 1847 when the state is feeding over three million people from public soup kitchens. Demonstrates what can be done if it mobilises its resources, but then backs away from that and essentially leaves Ireland to its own devices.
1: Can I just remind uh, the audience that you are invited to jump in at any stage? So, if anyone's any views on this question, you know, just put your hand up and we'll we bring you uh, into the, the discussion. On this question of responsibility, then, I mean, okay, the, the, you, it may be impossible to find intent, but certainly there was opportunism. Here, <coughs> I, I suggest, I, I mean, you know, the idea of not letting a good crisis go to waste. I mean, we, you know, I mean, the fact is that that governments use crises to, to push through certain policies, right? Uh, we've seen it ourselves here in the last ten years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my wage packet hasn't recovered to its. Pre-crisis, I don't know, but anyway, this is here. But you know, I'm still well, waiting. Yeah. I'm still waiting for my wait. You know, to <laughs> yeah. get all that money back. I, you know, I, um, no, you know, My point being, Peter, it yeah. certainly was intent for certain policies which were mm. detrimental.
2: Yeah. Mm. Well, I think well, this is uh, very much in in Patricia's side of the country and her her area. The people I think who are acting opportunistically are some of the great landlords who are seeing as an opportunity to repurpose their land from tillage agricultural to pastoral agricultural, to clear the people, to create grassland farms, which is where the money is going to be made in the the future. There's a lot of evidence for that. Is the state complicit in that? It allows it to happen? Does the state... Is the state uh, does it have a deliberate policy to bring that about? That's more problematic. I, I think the state's attitude towards the economy is a laissez-faire one. The, essentially, the economic actors should decide what policy should be rather than the state. The state is kind of backing away from responsibility. Mm-hmm. Is there... A, uh, yeah, and and sure? and yeah, just on the
6: whole discussion, one of the things that I found and write in writing my book, we can analyse and talk rationally on who is responsible, but it's to capture the emotive... The, the whole emotive power of what happened, and the film—just you know, this is what we're done in the film—and what I was really surprised me in terms of Ackle, um, and talking to an old man in Ackle who remembers his grandfather talking about the Ackle Mission Colony. What, what really surprised me was the power. Uh, I thought the famine and the deaths and the emigration would be the more powerful, but how that the land almost became the more um, the more powerful. Right. And when I looked at the oral history, they said, yes, our people died and our people left, and the deserted village. We might talk about that again. Yeah. But we had that land up on that mountain. And we were driven down to Doua, and we had to put more land out of sand and bog and whatever. And it was uh, that that surprised me how the land almost um, came on top of the famine and, and was the more powerful emotion. And they were still looking at the land and still looking at the places where they felt they should have been in their land. So that was, that was really interesting to me how all how those three phases kind of built on one another. You know, the schooling in the 1830s, where Mikhail and and Nangle were fighting over the schools, then the famine, and then the land. And there were only three decades. Like, there were a decade one after the other. Mm. And all of these coalesced in in very powerful oral, powerful memories that are still there to this very day.
1: Could you just talk about the the, the yeah. deserted village? This is on on uh, Moor, Because as a child, we, we went on holiday <coughs> to holidays Ackle and then a few years ago, I brought some uh, Danish in-laws, and it's amazing when you bring somebody from outside Ireland. Mm. And I mean, mm. it, to me, it is the pre- it is the famine monument, uh, and and there's very little there, just the the, the deserted village. How many people have seen it, just just curious, just the, a fair number of people, <laughs> yeah. right? And the effect it had on them. I mean, they just went quiet, right? Mm. I mean, they didn't speak for for but. Mm. Half an hour, and I gradually explained the background mm. to it. When was that depopulated? I mean, that was around language
6: time. First of all, if you have seen it, and I, wonder, I sometimes wonder why it's so dramatic. And I think it's dramatic. It's at the slopes of Schleimor Mountain. There's nothing there. It's on the edges of the Atlantic, but the extent of it, there are actually eighty to one hundred cottages, roofless cottages, over a mile and you it's can a big, actually see line. the lazy beds stretching out up into the mountains so in terms of just the visuals of it um, it, was, it began to be um, people began to leave during the famine the Gregory people Who who, who owned that
1: th- land? whose land was that?
6: What well, it was, I suppose, commonage. Uh, That's you the know, thing. So was, this was just, this yeah.
1: was people on the literally on yeah, the edge,
6: literally on yeah. the edge. And then they began to leave through the family for various reasons. But then it became part, or the areas close to it became part of the estate that the Acclamation Mission Colony took over. And of course, it, it became uh, mixed up with 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 some of that. And the, the um, um, German writer the, uh, Heinrich Bowles, some of you might have heard of his Irish journey. Uh, he was he was in Akel and he came upon the uh, deserted village. He called it a skeleton of human habitation. He said, why did nobody tell me, ab- tell me about this? Okay. So I think of all the images, and it's actually in the Coming Home exhibition very powerfully, uh, the deserted village has, it has an enormous power in terms of a visual um, of the famine, of the famine years. Tell you, um, I just
1: want to move things on a bit because one of the things that comes up uh, in the collection, John is just the detail of you know of the famine. How I mean, how people died, right? For example, mm. um, I, I, I remember in particular Larry Geary's article on the epidemic diseases of the, of the famine. So, like, what was the big killer in the eighteen forties?
5: Well, I suppose it's fair to think of famine. A, more, a better description of deaths in the famine will be mortality rather than outright starvation. There's no shortage of outright starvation, but malnutrition weakened immune systems rendered people more vulnerable to disease. Um, the climatic conditions of the 1840s, extremely wet conditions for a couple of years. Um, diseases of cholera, typhus, dysentery were pretty virulent killers as well. And these were diseases that existed. Cholera mm-hmm. outbreaks were... I mean, I used to work in the last end cemetery. My office looked out in a cholera pit, which is a charming thought when you're coming into work. <laughs> but outbreaks of disease were by no means uncommon in Ireland. But an outbreak of disease in a, in a country in which large chunks of the population... The poorest of the poor were severely malnourished and rendered vulnerable, made disease, uh, you know, probably as equally significant a killer as uh, as outright starvation. Certainly in Dublin, I mean, now Cormac O'Grod did some research into this, and it looks that more looks like more people died in Dublin of disease than starvation. Well, that's, that's not,
1: that wouldn't be in the popular imagination. People assume that it's all west of Ireland.
5: Oh no, well the thing is, though, the other, I mean, the, the, the two figures, the two figures to bear in mind with the depopulation of the famine is a million died, a million emigrated. How do you emigrate in the middle of the nineteenth century if not by boat? And you can't get onto a boat unless you get to a port. So, ironically, Dublin's population actually went up during the famine and booked the trend. And the same is true um, as we recall, it Belfast and Cork, all of which are major ports. Now, if you look, if you look at say, if you look at the layout of Dublin, where I suppose traditionally the west of the city would be its its artisan areas, places such as the Liberties, the first port of call to people coming up, people who are able to escape from the famine, a, a lot of people who died had no means of getting out, but those who could, who could get to Dublin were arriving in places that were old, that were overcrowded, that were al- already notorious for you know, I mean the tenements we associated with the 20th century, those slum conditions existed in Dublin in the 1840s and in fact officially in the early 20th century when Dublin slums were being investigated the 1840s was was isolated by official inquiries as the day when the problem really began to steamroller, when you had an influx of people arriving into the city you know, into you know overcrowding and disease and poor and poorly san in, place poor, so would, in places that would places that in which had the in places that had very very poor sanitation caused massive mortality in the city. You know, and certainly O'Grada's research, which was into the death tolls of the north and south Dublin unions, indicated that yeah, more people died of disease um, in Dublin during the famine. Now, you could I think it's fair to say that in the overall conditions, you could view these people as victims of the famine, just not victims of starvation.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Tommy John just r- reminds me of of uh, Miss Nicholson Asenath Nicholson. I'm sure you've heard of her. Um, you know that she, she features in my book. Who, and you mentioned the Atlas of the Irish Famine, and there's a wonderful chapter in it. And she was an extraordinary woman, you know, an American widow who actually travelled all over Ireland and really gave us wonderful accounts of what was going on in the slums in Dublin, right across to Ackle. And she had her own disagreements with, with Edward Nangle, stayed with the people. Um, and even though she came from the same background she was um, you know she had her Bibles under her cloak to bring the Bibles as she went around Ireland yet she had quite a different approach to Edward Nangle in that she very, like Tuke, the um, the Quaker she did not at all agree with linking conversion uh, mm-hmm. to the, the proselytizing but she gives us an extraordinary first-hand accounts of what went on in the slums and right th- right through Ireland
1: um, Peter could you, could you come in a little bit on uh, tell us how the 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 workhouse was supposed to work. I mean, the the, the, the theory and the practice, if you like. Because this bears on on the landlord response, because they were paying Mm -hmm. for this whole system. Maybe just if you could explain how it worked. Or or not, as the case may be.
2: The workhouse system is set up in 1838, before the famine. It's never intended to deal with a crisis like the Great Famine. Um, But the decision is made in the spring of 1847, by the government that it, it is going to be the the, the, the sole means of relief, once, once the, the the summer is over and the new harvest that is in, is collected in 1847, the poor law system and the 130 workhouses are going to be the sole means of relieving any residual uh, destitution, as they call it. Now, as we know, the famine doesn't end in the summer of 1847. There's very few potatoes planted, so there's no potato crop. Uh, the grain harvest is 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 not great either. And there's massive unemployment. And then we've got clearances coming in as well. So from the autumn of 1847, the, the poor law system and the workhouses... And the workhouse yards, because outdoor relief is permitted from the autumn of 1847, become the epicentre of this catastrophe. The workhouses are vastly overcrowded, so they hire more buildings, old factories, and warehouses. Those become massively overcrowded. Um, the, the hospital wings are are overwhelmed with uh, people with typhus fever and relapsing fever, with dysentery, uh, with, with ordinary diseases, which are, as John said, massively in- enhanced by. Famine, malnutrition, like measles uh, and, and scurvy, um, and the money simply isn't That's there. What to where's, the the revenue, where's the revenue? Where's so the revenue coming from? The revenue is, is is rates on the land, which is local taxation. Yeah. It's meant to be paid half by the tenant farmer and half by the landlord. Though for the smallest tenant farmers, it's paid entirely by the landlord. So um, the, the you know the, the 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 revenue simply isn't coming in. Um, the government uses charitable money, it uses the the remains of the British Relief Association collections to subsidize the rates in the West for a year. That money runs out in the summer of eighteen forty eight. And we have another year of famine in which there's virtually no funding coming from outside the West. You know, so we've got bankruptcy. Uh, and, and it kind of so collapse it, into, into catastrophic destitution. So sent
1: you a system mm-hmm. at the very time it needs more revenue, yep. its revenue stream is collapsing. Yep, yep. So this doesn't make sense, right? Yep. Now... From so the point of view, the landlords, right, their expenses are going up, Yeah. their income has collapsed. So is it no wonder they were clearing people off the land?
6: And like people mm-hmm. like the Marcus of Sligo, yep. who would have been a good mm-hmm. landlord, would have done a lot of, of good. I mean, he was even forced uh, to clear some of his his tenants. Well, the point is, if
1: you didn't clear, you were going to go bankrupt. Far be for me to argue yeah. the case for landlords here, but I'm just trying to tease out... Uh, you know, the motivation here
2: because. Well, I, I okay, so we, if we look at landlords, landlords respond in different ways. Not all landlords do the same thing. So Patricia mentioned that the Marcus of Sligo, Sligo. whose family, he and his family, start off with being relatively generous, mm-hmm. cutting their costs. But mm. then, you know, the argument, he makes the argument, I must clear or be cleared myself, my yeah. family will lose mm-hmm. everything. Massive clearances, but you know one of the the neighbouring landlords, George George Henry Moore, who's a Catholic landlord later leader of the Independent Irish Party, doesn't clear anybody from mm. his estates. Uh, Daniel O'Connell basically bankrupts himself uh, before he dies by spending, You uh, then they have to sell off his his house, etc., and his library. As he spends, he spends his own money subsidising his tenants down in, in West Kerry. you know. Mm. So different landlords responded in different ways. On the other hand you've got people yeah. like Lord Lucan at Balnarow yeah. who just clears 2,000 tenants off, off the land And, and in Ackles Sir Richard
6: bond. O'Donnell was forced to sell his yeah. and the Ackles Mission Connolly uh, acquired the bulk of the estate but they in turn either uh, sold on to people like William Pike who became quite a notorious landlord and they in turn sublet to people like Captain Boycott. So suddenly mm-hmm. in Ackle, in the 1850s, where you had Sir Richard O'Donnell as the dominant landlord, now you had a whole lot of different owners, different people coming in, like Boycott and, uh, and his history and so on. The fisheries were sold off to a man called Hector. So in, in over a decade, the whole uh, face of Ackle was transformed, Hmm. And not just transformed by the ownership of land, but transformed by the church because uh, Mikhail started his aggressive fight back and the Bonacore Monastery came, churches began to be built. So an extraordinary transformation in that decade in terms of land ownership and construction and so on. How, how um, successful
1: was Nagel from his own point of view in actually you know, converting people? I and mean, what was the percentage catholic um, Protestant breakdown? Well,
6: one, a lot of my research was based on the Ackland Missionary Herald. If you want to go through, there's about 30 years of it. lots of it in the National Library. But one of the st- stats he uses himself is in 1849, four years into the famine, the Archbishop, the Protestant Archbishop of Tum, came to the Ackland Mission colony and he confirmed 400 children. 90 percent of whom were converts so that was something he loved too so there were certainly hundreds uh, it began to decline uh, pretty soon because um, uh, John McHale started tracking them back again some of them emigrated um, so it actually fell back very quickly but it was certainly it was certainly um, uh, several hundred.
1: Now uh, John just going back to the the, the, the history and collection um, there was a, an election general election I think in 1847 mm. um, and this is an article by, by Brian Walker and my memory of it, it what Brian says is that the election really was fought as if the famine wasn't happening at all it was totally divorced from yeah. what was happening on the ground
5: I mean life I mean life went on for many people uh, I mean there's another article that was only published in uh, in History Ireland uh, I think only a couple of issues ago about conspicuous consumption during the famine mm. you know the, the activities of the elite regattas Thousands of people going to horse race, horse race, horse races. Um, now, it, I mean, the, you could say that it wasn't an absolute famine and that the people who um, it impacted were the poorest of the poor. But there were certainly large swathes of Irish life that were happily, as they saw, trundling on and conducting their business.
1: I particularly like the, the, the sign in a Dublin restaurant on beefsteak and oysters as usual.
5: And one Very sensitive. <laughs> and this was being criticised at the time, like like race, like race meetings, for example, in Tipperary, you had local newspapers saying, well, it's quite possible in hunting season, you know, the hunter's going to be kind of racing past basically people who are starving to death. But it, it was happening. And life was carrying on fairly, in a, in a manner for many people, that seems to have been unaffected by the famine. And that's something we need to bear in mind. I mean, if the, further, the further up the social Ireland social ladder you went, the more safely insulated you were from humanitarian crisis at the bottom of it and the same the same would be true political life i mean the brian walker article in the collection yeah it was an election and it wasn't about the famine political life went on and the social realities of ireland in the 1840s
2: the two did not meet, necessarily meet
1: C- And just hold on one second period because i think you you've a dissenting view from this um, well
2: i, I think you've got to kind of understand what's happening politically during the famine um Okay, so very few people actually have the vote. Uh, there's a big, there's, there's a major extension of who has the vote in 1850, right at the end of the famine. But very few people have the vote. Um, but people have been very interested in elections in the 1830s, 1840s, largely because they've been mobilized by the, the O'Connellite movement. You know, these mass meetings that Daniel O'Connell has for repeal of the Union and demanding all sorts of reforms. That movement collapses during the famine because people can People are prior, ordinary people are prioritizing survival. Over political activity, O'Connell himself is is, is dying, and then dies in forty seven. His son is a very weak political leader, you know. So the dynamics that had, that had kind of given life uh, to Irish politics, even people who didn't have the vote, they'd still turn up at hustings and shout and cheer and cause riots, you know. So they had a leverage over, in some cases, who got elected. That collapses in part during the famine itself, but at the same time, I think if you move into the later years, particularly forty eight, forty nine, fifty, the start of a of a tenant right movement, you know, the, those who, are, who have survived, farmers who have survived, are banding together and forming political organisations to, to, to defend themselves against clearance and, and increased rents, so we get a kind of major shift by 1852 when there's a kind of, you know, a, a tenant league election, Gavin mm-hmm, Duffy, mm-hmm. who had been kind of, you know, involved in Young Ireland, is, is at the centre of that um, William Sharman Crawford, who I'm writing about at the moment, in the north as well. You know, so I think you know to some extent it's true that there is a, a, a kind of lull in Irish formal political activity in 1847 because people are just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. But it's it's only a brief thing, and then okay. this Okay, so it's, it's a bit
1: it's a bit slightly illusory. You, you yeah. think Yeah, I think so. Yeah, just if you could use the the radio mic. Yeah, thanks.
7: I mean, it's interesting to say people because you know people. Are from different backgrounds and different circumstances, and um, like there's no doubt about you know overall who was responsible in terms of the government at the time and how the landlords uh, responded to the situation and and said used the situation, but I'm particularly interested in how are the you could say. The Irish, at various levels, responded to the situation because, as you mentioned, like as I understand it, you know, railways were being built, bridges were being built, churches were being built. For many, this was a, 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 through the 40s as well as then into the 50s. Uh, this was a, a sort of a, a fairly economically vibrant times, and yet there was this famine situation going on alongside that. And not only how people sort of responded at the time, but then how, in terms of, because there's a sense of that this was a time that we say shopkeepers in particular, that they, um, you know, hoarded some of the projects, so prices went up at times when people were starving. And also in terms of, uh, you know, taking over uh, from where people were evicted at, at, at different stages. So that people use the opportunity, and Irish people at different levels of the mm. society, which is something that I think is only beginning to be brought out at this stage by historians.
1: There's winners and losers, Peter.
2: Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, The famine sees both, both the absolute worst and, in some cases, the best of human nature and human responses. So if we look at people who are not actually starving, what are they doing? Yes, some people are profiteering. Absolutely no question that's going on. People in the merchant classes... Um, some of the bigger farmers—they're uh, profiteering. Yes, uh, the institutional Catholic Church is still building cathedrals during the Great Famine. So, you know, Killarney Cathedral goes up in the later eighteen forties. On the other hand, you've got priests and clergy of all denominations who are putting themselves into the front line and dying of famine fever. Uh, relief volunteers uh, doing the same thing. It's a very high mortality of people who are, you know, who, who are the, uh, themselves not at risk of starvation, but have put themselves into the front line of, of relief work. You know, um, so I think you know the, the 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 picture is is mixed. We have these kind of very cynical, opportunistic, uh, and exploitative behaviours, very common. But we also have people that are engaged in self-sacrificing behaviours as well.
1: Patricia, can I bring you in here because there is a kind of a, a, a glib kind of a folk memory that that the Catholic Church and the clergy didn't step up the plate. You know, this is almost given as an argument almost for superism that at least they were giving the people a soup. That the Catholic Church kind of stayed at home.
6: Yeah, and in fact in the course of my research I would have found that Edward Nangle would have criticised them and I didn't see a huge stepping up from the Catholic clergy during the famine years in Ackle but yet towards the end of the famine when they saw them, Arch- Mikhail in particular, saw all the children uh, being fed and mo- moving over to Catholic, then there was a very aggressive, and it was driv- driven by Cullen as well, a very aggressive reaction, for instance, by setting up a Nikkari monastery almost modeled on the Ackle colony itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, there was a priest in Ackle who wrote, you know, Archbishop Murray in Dublin had a fund, and a pr- one of the priests in Ackle, who was probably more involved, wrote looking for money. And I was really interested, and he said, I understand the children are going to Edward Nangle's schools, but that's totally understandable. Who would not go to schools? I don't judge them. Hmm. Um, But certainly, uh, Edward Nangle and the uh, academic Connolly was much more proactive, it seemed to me, in feeding and providing employment. And in building up the infrastructure, like it was very interesting that over the period of the famine, you were talking about infrastructure happening, there was a huge expansion of the infrastructure of the Ackle colony. And at the height of the famine, Edward Nangle raised 6,000 pounds in one year. And a lot of that actually went into building up the infrastructure, as well as doing the employment schemes, as well as feeding the children in the schools. So he had a whole apparatus, much stronger than the Catholic apparatus. But but it could be
1: said, let me bring you in on this, Peter, like from the the, uh, children of what you've been saying there about Michael and and uh, Colin and so on mm. that humanitarian concern was not was not front and center of their of their concerns their concerns was the fight that, that the proselytizers uh,
6: well certainly the Ac- well, the mission colony was so active um, uh, during the fam years in ACL that uh, certainly the catholic the catholic church was a newly and one of the things that John McHale himself was gathering funds in, in Tewham, and he was personally sitting up at night doling out the funds, and where they went, or, I'm, I'm not sure, but he was personally looking after it, but certainly the acclimation of Connolly was much more proactive in terms of the but obviously the criticism is that it was cloaked in this effort at proselytising and getting people to convert to the colony, and that's obviously the... Uh, pros and cons of the acclamation and the argument that goes on about the acclamation. Peter, uh,
2: is more is to say it, on that? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, I mean, it's certainly true that the kind of princes of the church, if you like, are, mm. are pursuing their, their, their pre-existing uh, mm. objectives. Mm. But, I mean, at the same time, there is a serious Catholic charitable response to the famine. There is a papal, a papal letter sent out throughout Europe uh, at the suggestion of Cullen, who's still in Rome in 1847. He's uh, still principal of the Irish College there. Uh, so Pius IX sends, sends this letter out uh, uh, to the kind of global Catholic uh, community and money comes back in through Rome and is channeled to Archbishop mm-hmm. Murray in Dublin who then di- distributes to parishes in the West. Catholic, and the, Many of the Catholic clergy in the West do become, because there are no other literate spokespeople for the peasantry, they do become the advocates of the poor. I mean, someone like... Uh, um, archdeacon sullivan uh, sullivan of um, Kent Mare, for example writing constantly to the government in very very uh, assertive uh, and graphic language about what's happening to the poor of of the district and demanding that the state intervene you know so i, I mean i think the picture is mi- is is mixed in terms of what the how the church responds but there's a lot of positive in it as well yeah that's
4: it Going to be ba- vague. I don't remember the names. Davis, um, Thomas Davis, yeah. Eighteen uh, sixties, I think he was writing.
2: eighteen thirty. Eighteen forties. Eighteen forties.
4: Oh I, I, well, oh, what I read by him was a bit after the famine because he was criticising the um, landlords, many of them, many of whom had beautified their estates mm-hmm. with the money that was given for relief. And <clears throat> I often wonder about, say, Paris Court Gardens. They were built in the eighteen forties. So I was just wondering and other places, if you know anything about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, Thomas Davis dies in 1845, so he dies before <coughs> the famine famine starts. But, of course, he, he's the great, you know, poet and visionary writer of, of the Young Ireland movement uh, and the kind of key influence in... Writes...
1: Well, just, it, just, use it, just use the mic if you want to come back. Sorry. Yeah, I mean,
4: I have a book, but I thought it was Thomas Davis... And I thought it was just after the famine that he was no, writing, be. Cri- criticising There could well them. be someone else from Somebody that adds, tradition. Right. Yeah. I mean, but levelling this criticism that they used the money to beautify their estates and make yeah. ports and things like this. Yeah, I'm,
2: I I, I, don't, I mean, there's a lot of criticism during the famine um, that landlords are not using the money not so much to beautify their estates, but to improve their estates, to carry out drainage projects, mm. build new service roads on their estates, particularly from the public works. Uh, funding in the first year of the famine—that's one of the reasons you get this backlash in British public opinion. Why should we be paying out money, which is then being used by landlords to to do what they should be using their own resources to do? So that la- that argument becomes actually one for penny pinching and one for for our aggressive attitude towards towards spending. And some, you know, many of these cases are exaggerated. I mean, what's certainly true is that landlords, in the previous half century, had spent a lot of money. You know, building new country houses and beautifying their, their country houses. This comes in, in the Great Famine. Of course there's a moral critique against them, you know, for having wasted so much money, you know, drawn from yeah. the rents of their own estates right. and not having improved the lives and conditions of the ordinary yeah.
4: people. But I think the earlier money had come from the Act of Union, you know well some that of them
2: some yeah. of them have been paid off for the loss of their yeah. their political property, you know, yeah. their their boroughs during the Act of Union. Yeah, that's certainly true.
1: Yeah, it,
2: yeah,
1: gentleman here
0: Yeah, uh, I'd like to hear somebody talk about maybe from a point of view of neocolonialism uh, the British uh, at the time the British Empire was the greatest empire in the world and we were its first colony and I believe uh, Britain always had a policy of exploitation so when they did say about things Irish property must pay for Irish poverty and when you had laissez-faire, providentialism of, of Trevelyan and so on like that, and like you said about the evangelicals, I believe this was another aspect of the whole neo-colonial approach, and I'm reminded of um, the Second World War when uh, against the Jews. You had the ubermension and the untermension, and I think the Irish were definitely the untermension. And I believe this informed their policy in dealing with the famine, not allowing imports of corn, because the corn laws would would interfere with uh, British agriculture at the time. Eventually, they allowed a couple of ships to come from the United States, given permission to come in. So I think it was a kind of a, a colonial project, if you like.
2: Well, I, I don't
0: like the term neo-colonial because
5: I think the term colonial is sufficient. And uh, I was originally a historian of early modern Ireland, and... Uh, the the concept of Ireland as a colony is something that, shall we say, drifted out of the historiography of Ireland after the Act of Union. You can't understand Irish history in the 16th and 17th century and ignore the fact of widespread colonisation in the south and the north and across the Midlands, the imprint of which survived well into the modern period. Um, and I don't think it's sufficient to say that, well, Ireland was an integral part of uh, the United Kingdom, had representatives Westminster. But it had a colonial past and had evolved in a certain way. And it's interesting that one thing that historians mightn't be willing to use that framework, historical geographers do. And certainly in in the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine, William J. Smith, historical geographer based in in UCC, who was one of the editors of it, puts the the famine exactly within that framework, the framework of a part of the United Kingdom, in which its balance of trade was kind of reorientated into focusing on one particular market, i.e. the remainder of the UK, Britain. And it's interesting that historians might be willing to go down that road because they may feel it's tinged with polemic, but a historical geographer who's going to have a different focus has no problem accepting that. And it's a concept that needs to be let back in a bit more to be analysed and discussed around, not uncritically, but it certainly shouldn't be something that is is off the table.
2: It's, it's a valid framework. Could, could, could I, I agree with John on that. I mean, some of the most really um, uh, innovative work uh, on on thinking about the long term and medium term causation of the famine has been done by Willie Smith mm-hmm. and his team in Cork, and also by by David Nally in a book called Human Encumbrances, which came out a few years ago. He's a historical geographer, uh, Irish historical geographer, based in, in in Cambridge. So I think I mean absolutely right. I mean we do need to remember these long t- long term structures which are created by the colonial process. Whether that explains. In a reductive way, the policy adopted in the 1840s, I think, is a little bit more problematic. Um, not least because if we look at the government that's actually in power in the later 1840s, it's a government. It's a government which had done deals with Irish popular opinion with Daniel O'Connell in the 1830s, and again in, in 1846 when it comes back into power. It's it's a it's a, a party which supported Catholic emancipation. It's a party which is. is Pro free trade, so they don't stop food coming into Ireland. In some ways, it's the opposite. They expect the free market to Mm -hmm. provide that Mm -hmm. food coming into Ireland by abolishing the Corn Laws and by letting the kind of the market solve the problem. So I I don't think that government is inherently anti-Irish. I think that they are preoccupied with the idea that market forces will solve the problem of the Great Famine. And but in doing that, of course, they're ignoring the structural you know, um, subordination of the Irish economy to the English economy, which indeed has been created by by the colonial process.
3: I'd just like to point out that the chair of Irish in Trinity was created just before the famine or around famine times, and it was done with an evangelical purpose. It was, um, Trinity had a chair of Arabic before they had a chair of Irish, now, they may have had Irish scholars doing history and manuscripts and so on, but they didn't actually have a chair of Irish until the Earl of Roden, who was from County Down, a big um, orange man and uh, interesting, interested in proselytising, uh, he thought there should be a chair of Irish because the ministers should be trained in speaking Irish so that they could convert the people in the west of Ireland and they could stop them drinking, playing cards and so on and m- m- make make them better citizens and so on so the chair was actually funded by the Earl of Roden, and he said I think it is very unworthy of Trinity not to have a chair of Irish uh, the first professor of Irish oddly enough was from the landlord class in Connemara and he was Thomas de Vere Connes from outside Clifton and he wrote a dictionary uh, in the 1840s to help the missionaries in the west of Ireland Now, um, similarly to Ackle, uh, things got actually worse in Connemara, very, very bad in 1880, and um, when conditions were as bad as anything in the Great Famine, according to the descriptions of the Quakers. And then the Quakers made a great effort um, to help people with assisted passages to America in 1882-83. But in the end, and... They never proselytised the Quakers, but in the end, the church became afraid. They were losing people. Shopkeepers were losing people, and the politicians Davitt and Parnell didn't like the mass exodus of people. So that scheme uh, fizzled out. But it was headed by Chuke, a Quaker, and it was one he thought it out very carefully. But in the states, they were afraid of having paupers downloaded on them or sent to them and um, the assisted uh, emigration schemes stopped after a few years but in any case um, the chair of Irish in Trinity belongs to that period
5: One one thing uh, in relation to the teaching of Irish in Trinity I mean Trinity's origins are as much like a seminary for the Church of Ireland as much as a university and Irish was taught under uh, Bishop William Beadle as provost in the early part of the 17th century and it's precisely for that reason, to equip newly ordained members of the Church of Ireland to go out and preach. So it, it might have been a chair, but it's an idea that actually goes back to the origins of the university itself.
6: Thank you. Not to digress uh, into discussion of the Irish language but uh, relevant to what we have just been talking about now, uh, were it not for Queen Elizabeth I, um, who translate, Who paid to have uh, a Bible translated into Gaelga in order to commune with the wild savages uh, that were outside the door of Trinity College at that stage. Uh, Irish would never have survived. Now, that's a, a, a very big topic, but it's uh, ironic that we owe it to Elizabeth I that we have the language. Old MacNeill was the next person after that who really saved it. Thank you. I'm to say, Tommy, um, the Irish language was an inherent part of Edward Nangle's philosophy, and he had taken it from Christopher Anderson in the Scottish Highlands in the 1820s, who had said, that we must bring the Bible to the people in their own languages. So he actually had the Bible translated, Edward Nangle, and so on. Uh, so it was very much part of his thinking in setting up the mission. in ACU. I'm
1: just here, I'm keeping an eye on the time here. And before we finish, I just want to ask the panel about the the, the movie um, Black 47, which is the only uh, film ever made with a famine theme in it. So. What do you think, Peter?
2: Any good Well it's not the only movie ever made. There there was a version of Knock and a Go okay. by Charles Kickham made back in the, oh, the, in, the, the in the, in the okay. silent in the silent era. But yeah, yeah, you your your Jadville point is is right. I mean I, I enjoyed Black Forty Seven. I suppose I shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> you know, because it's a very well made, very well told story. It's very powerfully put together. I mean it is what it is. It's it, it's very much based on the on the Western um yeah, exactly. Exa- exa- it's the we- that Western tradition of the revenge, the it's revenge a movie. A film. Are yeah. for a
0: documentary
2: that's right. No, no, exactly. No, that, that's yeah. that's quite right. I know, and and you know, uh, the atmosphere is very powerful. Use of the Irish language mm. in that film, mm. I think, mm. is very well done. Country. You know, so you know, I mean, if you don't go to that movie as you say for a documentary, mm. but it works within its own. Well, history.
1: in terms of the the the, the history, in us. Uh, some critics said it's a little bit chunky, like. But would you give it that? You, you, you well, give it I,
2: the, the most interesting thing. I mean, you're, gonna, you're always going to get the the kind of stereotypical landlord. But the most interesting thing to me at all is the identification. First, the first victim uh, of our our, our revenger is the Gombean man, which is mm. you know that, that's that's a tradition that goes back to William Carleton and the Black Prophet. You know the Gombin man as the, as the kind of oppressor of the poor as much as as the land. He kind of works as we I start off the land grabber, then the man, yeah, yeah, then exactly. the landlord, yeah, like he kind yeah, of yeah, r- yeah
1: yeah. Oh, spoiler! Sorry, I just, yeah, sorry, just ruined yeah, the whole movie. Before, yeah.
2: <laughs> I shouldn't give that away.
1: <laughs> um, well, Patricia, what, yeah, what do you think? Yeah,
6: I liked it, and I was trying to figure out because it got very mixed reviews. So why did I like it? One of the reasons I think it t- I use the phrase it tells a slant it comes at the story sideways because it's more like a cowboy thriller type. So you're not actually doing it straight on. And the other thing is actually an emotive thing. You know, we argue about it was a genocide or not a, a genocide. But there is such a huge emotive content in it that I felt emotionally, I got carried in, somebody's responsible for this. And you got you f- were following this kind of emotional thing, yeah. but as a revenge cowboy thing. So it dealt with some of the emotional stuff. And also I thought the Irish language bit, you get the sense of that rupture in terms of culture mm. and language and so on. I thought maybe it tried a little bit too hard to show that it had done all this research and superism mm. was in and the Dublin Castle and whatever. But I liked it. I thought it worked It's funny that, that, uh, that you
1: talk about that emotional response because yeah. the, the character in the film who articulates that is this young English?
6: Yes, a yes. Footboy
1: or whatever he is. Yeah, uh, assistant. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, you know, and he's the one who just says, yeah, "Just feed these people." You know, he, yes. he, he responds, yes. you know, totally emotionally. Yes. and I think that was quite clever to mm. use somebody who's not, mm-hmm. not an Irish character at all. You yeah, know, yeah. And John, what, what did you make of it?
5: Well, I've a three-year-old, so the last film I saw was Paddington Bear. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got around to it yet. <laughs>
1: Uh, that's that's mm-hmm. sort the subject of the nexus of Paddington Bear and the famine. Mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> our next, uh, count me in. Our next topic. Anyone anyone else in the audience with a view on us uh, of of the the movie or indeed of the of the the exhibition uh, that, that we we mentioned? Just, Just if the you the use phone. use the microphone, yeah, so we can hear you.
0: Just going to say about the Stephen Ray character it, uh, yeah, uh, fascinating it, it character very interesting character yeah. he's a kind of a really weird Irish version of the Greek chorus mm-hmm. commenting on what's going on and especially when he's explaining to the landlord and by the way they use Down House as the setting for that shootout in the but he's trying to explain to him about what would happen to an Irish <laughs> Colleen if she was given the same chances as yeah. the English woman. You know, I, I, I thought he was a very interesting character, and he played it very, very well. He upset a few people singing his song on the mule as he was going along. I you know one lady who was a famous Irish soprano couldn't couldn't take it at all. But I think she was looking for the wrong film. Mm-hmm. Right,
1: right. Now, anyone anyway, else want to come in? Because I'm going to wrap up here. We've we've uh, we've uh, looked at this from all sorts of angles. Um, Peter, can I just finish with you though? Um, in terms of what what sort of books are we going to be expecting next down the pipeline? What what oh. are the issues? What are the hot topics in relation to the famine? Well, coming, I, I, coming I down think the line? some
2: of the really most exciting and interesting work that's that's appeared in recent years has been local studies, very rich local studies. You know, Patricia's book, which I'm I'm really looking forward to reading, I have it sitting on my desk, is it, it, one of those. You know, but books like Brendan MacSivern's The End of Outrage, you know, which are deep. Deep uh, drillings down into the intimate. Could you give us a quick history of just what that's about? Just yeah, well, I mean, this this is this is uh, kind of a, a village study. It's based on a on, it's like Monty, like that criminal... French,
1: the famous French
2: book. That's right. You yeah, know, it's, it's based on a, on, a, on, a, on an episode in which there, you know, there, there's a kind of criminal criminal case having to do with land, you know, and how different people have have uh, kind of. Place their relationship with the landlord and, and with, with the famine relationship in this village in, in County Donegal. It's a very kind of rich, thick description. And the author is descended um,
1: from some of them as well, uh, by I, the way.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, Kieran yeah. O, O'Mercata's book, uh, Figures in the la- Famine Landscape, I'd very strongly recommend as well, which is set in West Clare, which looks at key, key individuals in this highly contested area. And the West Clare evictions by the Vandeleurs are some of the worst you know, in the later stages of the famine but he's looking at, at the vandalers but also the local clergy the local relief officials uh, uh, Charles Kennedy who's the poor law inspector a key figure in, in opening up the scandal of what's going on down there and um, you know um, uh, and, and you know books like that you mm-hmm. know I, th- I, I, I mean I, I think there's a, a huge wealth of local stories and, and and you know which can be done in quite a sophisticated way now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm placed into comparative perspective I think comparative history is the other area which we've seen a really lot of very interesting work done, placing the Irish famine into into wider, just as we're looking down, we're also looking up and out at, uh, you know, Cormac has kind of really led the, the field there and kind of looking at how Ireland, the Irish famine relates to famines like that in Finland in the 1860s the Ukraine in the 1930s you know, um, famines in, in British India uh, uh, etc. In the, in the late Century. Yemen
1: 2018. Yeah, so you know, I mean, I mean, this it, keeps this it relevant. Never ends. You know?
5: it keeps it, keeps yeah. it relevant. John, hmm. yeah. One thing that uh, I'd be, be interested to see how this would get written on I mean, I wrote a kind of overview of history of Ireland there last year, and when I was going through the 19th century bit, uh, the stuff that I found most fascinating and eye opening um, wasn't necessarily the famine itself, but its impact in its aftermath and the profound social changes that, and cultural change that followed in its wake. That process of change. The uh, mass immigration, depopulation, language shift—all these issues that have essentially kind of shaped the society that we're still living in—and I think it's no exaggeration to, see, to say that perhaps the, that the, the big dividing line for me that divides early modern Ireland and Ireland as categories is not the Act of Union or the end of the Napoleonic Wars; it's the famine and the, and the changes that the, the change that flowed from that disruptive event in the second half of the 19th century. Um, seems to be a fascinating subject, of uh, an important subject to study, and one that you'd like. I know that Brendan McShivnan's book touches on it, but the three-year-old wouldn't let me read that either. Um, but it's, it's that, that kind of couple of generations that came after the famine and before the uh, the revolutionary years of the 20th century. There's, uh, there's something there that's really fascinating and important, and you'd like to see being explored and teased out more widely.
1: Okay, I'm just going to I'm going to wrap things up there. I just want to, to get back to the job in hand, which is to plug these books here. This is the Great Famine, uh, History Ireland Pen and Sword collaboration, edited by John Gibney here, and this is um, Patricia's The Preacher and the Prelate about the the ACAL Mission. Uh, as I said, the Cambridge. Uh, history was too big to, to bring in here. I
2: just say it, it is available as, a, as an e-book, so you can get it through libraries. I mean, it's, it's got a big four-volume set, very expensive, but libraries will have it in hard copy and hopefully an e-book version as well. If
1: you can't afford a book, you can read the review. and
2: Read the history. <laughs> history. <laughs>
1: now, uh, just to say right. then, uh, tomorrow, I will be doing another session tomorrow uh, in the RDS at quarter to three, the RDS library, uh, where I'll be having a chat with David McCullough, whose uh, second volume of his uh, De Valera book has just come out. And I'll also be talking to uh, Fergus O'Farrell, who's brought out this uh, uh, shorter uh, Life and Time series on Cattle Brewer. So we, we'll be doing a two-hander uh, uh, interview on that. And the next uh, History Island Head School will be on Tuesday, the 4th of December. And this is in collaboration with the National Photographic Archive. In fact, it will be held in the National Photographic Archive in Temple Bar uh, to, to go along with their exhibition from Ballots to Bullets, Ireland, 1918 to 1919. So we Brian Hanley, Liz Gillis and Neave Purcell. So I'd just like to finally uh, thank our speakers here uh, today, uh, John Gibney, Peter Grey and Patricia Byrne. I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who made a contribution from the floor, and I hope to see you at future hedge schools. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks,
4: Patricia.